Please bow with me in prayer. Speak, O Lord, through your living word now. Lord, teach us your ways that we might be found faithful to you. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, have you ever known someone that was just born to teach? Everybody has had a favorite teacher at some point growing up in the education system. And for me, it was a high school physics teacher, a teacher whose passion for the subject matter just clearly brought the subject alive in the classroom. Her creativity and knowledge and interest in her her students understanding the subject made it nearly impossible to dislike her class. And the only thing that could have made her class a little bit better is if somehow her knowledge of the subject transferred to my understanding of the subject, but that was not her fault. Have you known someone like that? Have you known someone who just clearly could communicate a certain subject matter in a way that that brought it alive and captured your attention and challenged you to be the best you could in that subject. We have a number of teachers that are represented here in this congregation this morning. And no doubt, some of you teachers are that teacher or have been that teacher to some of your students. And thank you for that. And Scripture Teaches. In fact, Jesus, the divine storyteller, teaches and communicates that, that every child of God, every man, woman, boy, or girl that has been born again and trusted in Christ for salvation has been born to teach. Has been born to teach. And I think we'll see that this morning from God's Word to us in Matthew chapter 13. And so I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to to Matthew chapter 13. And we've been in this chapter for several weeks now, but I hope you'll agree with me that this chapter is just loaded with these earthly comparisons and illustrations and stories known as parables that that Jesus used uh, to communicate incredible, guiding, foundational, biblical truths for us as the people of God today. So look with me now at Matthew chapter 13. As we pick up in verse 47, verse 47 of Matthew 13, once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. Let's stop there for just a moment. We've seen a number of comparisons already leading up to this passage uh, about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. We, we learned that, that Jesus, when he said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that's planted in the ground, that the kingdom of God has unimpressive beginnings by our standards and expectations. And We've learned that when he said the kingdom of God is like yeast that a woman took it and mixed throughout flour until it covered the whole, the whole batch of dough, that the kingdom of God has transformative power in the world. And we've also learned that when Jesus 
compared God's kingdom to a treasure that was hidden in a field or to a merchant that was looking for fine pearls, that the kingdom of God and being part of that kingdom is is worth far, far more than anything and everything else in this world. And now here in verse 47, a new comparison, another analogy, another illustration. And Jesus said that it's like a net, a fisherman's net, a drag net to be exact. It's let down into a lake and gathers in all kinds of fish. Now remember back in verse 36 that we read that, that Jesus left the crowd, he'd been teaching the crowds, and he went into the house. And then we read in verse 36 that his disciples came to him. So presumably now, at this point, Jesus is no longer teaching all of the people. He's he's no longer uh, giving instruction to the masses, to the crowds, as he was when he told the parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds, and the parables of the mustard seed and yeast. Now he's speaking specifically to his disciples, namely uh, the twelve, at least the twelve, if not others included as well, that, that had already put their faith in him and had pledged to follow after him. And what do we know about those 12. We know that a number of them were fishermen, were they not? Turn back in your Bibles a few pages to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 18. We read this, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers... Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Verse 21, going on from there, he saw two other brothers. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So Jesus is instructing his disciples, those four and some others. And they've got to be thinking, okay, now really an illustration that we can relate to. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a net that's let down the lake. It brings in all kinds of fish. And I tried to imagine what his disciples might have been anticipating him saying. The kingdom of heaven is like a, a net It's put down the water, brings in all kinds of fish. Perhaps they were thinking that just like a net captures every fish in its direct path, God's king and his kingdom will, will be inescapable for all those in his path. Or maybe like a a dragnet is tied between two boats and and dropped to the bottom of the lake and then taken into the shore to to capture all the fish in its path that the kingdom of heaven would extend as far as you can imagine to the north and south and east and west. And and all the people of of the earth would be part of God's kingdom. I think those are certainly possible expectations from his listeners as Jesus began to, to describe the kingdom of heaven in this way. But, but we see here that, that neither of those were really what he was after in this comparison. Instead, he, he focused in on a distinction between two types of fish, good fish 
that are taken in and, and bad fish which are thrown away. And this is, this is a comparison that, that any fisherman would have been able to relate to as, as they gathered in their nets and sorted through fish that were ceremonially clean and suitable, large enough to eat and cast other bad fish aside. And this reminds me of a time as a teenager that I took a man from Honduras who was in the United States, was staying for a few weeks at my parents' house, uh, a time that I took him fishing. Um, speaking of Honduras, we do have a Honduras mission trip interest meeting tonight <laughs> at 7 o'clock. I like the way I threw that in there. But this young man, and I can't remember his name, his name escapes me at the time, but he was here for a few weeks and uh, he knew that I liked to fish. I loved to fish and still like to fish. And so he had asked me why he was here to take him fishing. And so we did one day, and it was hot. It was a summer day, and it was brutally hot. The fish were not biting well at all. And then finally, uh, we, we caught a fish, a pretty good-sized fish, and we got it in the boat. And He was pretty disappointed when he asked me, if we were going to eat this particular fish. And because this was not a normal game fish that's popular in the southern United States. And, and you know, last week I shared a little bit about my love for, uh, for collecting sports cards as a, an elementary student. Well, that morphed into a love for outdoors and fishing. So it wasn't like I didn't know uh, what fish were around. Uh, I mean, my wife calls me a redneck now, but... But, but now it doesn't compare. I w- I'm a lot more civil and tame now than I was as a teenager. But we caught this fish and got it in the boat. and It was scaly and it looked, didn't look like anything I'd ever seen. And so when he asked it, hey, we're going to get to eat this fish. I said, no way, we're not eating this fish. I don't know what that is, but I don't think it's going to taste very good. I mean, I'm, I'm not very picky. I'm pretty open to whatever. But this was something that was not on my menu And this is the picture here in Matthew 13 of this net that pulls in all these different types of fish. And and the the fishermen sort through the the fish and and keep the good fish and throw the bad fish away. And then in the next couple verses, Jesus, as he's telling this parable, this story, he begins to offer an explanation for this parable. Look down at verses 49 and 50. Then Jesus said, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a description that we have heard before. In fact, this is very similar to another parable in this chapter that Jesus told, the the parable of the weeds. In that parable, remember the the weeds were, were taken and burned. Whereas the, the wheat was gathered into the barn, the landowner's barn. And Jesus is born at the harvest, at the end of the age. Whereas the wheat was gathered up and put in bundles and, and burned. And we see that same description in verse 42 as we do here in verse 50. Thrown into the fire furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is not a pretty picture. This is not... Uh, a comforting truth. But the truth that's being communicated here is the same truth that Jesus communicated in the other parable. And it said all people will be held accountable before God. All people will be held accountable before God. 
at the return of Christ, at the final judgment before the king. No one will be immune from that judgment. No one is immune because all owe their existence to the Creator. No one stands alive today or any other day apart from the sovereign rule and reign and grace of the Almighty God. And the truth found here in Scripture and elsewhere in Scripture is that all one day will give an account before that same God. We see that that not all will receive the same verdict from God. Two, Two types of people are described here just as they were with the parable of the weeds. And it's the wicked and the righteous. The wicked and the righteous. They will receive two separate verdicts from God at the final judgment, at the end of the age. And the truth here that we see for the righteous is that the righteous will be spared the judgment of God. The righteous will be spared the judgment of God. And by righteous, these are are those that are upright and just and right before their Creator. Right standing before God. The truth is that those will be spared the judgment of God. They will not experience this fiery furnace where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. God would not punish the righteous. Of course He wouldn't do that. But the truth is that according to Scripture, none are righteous. None are righteous before God. That's the truth of Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. There is no one righteous. No, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. The truth of Scripture is that all people, past, present, future, who have lived on this earth have fallen short of the standard of God. All have messed up. All have rebelled against the perfect and holy, almighty and eternal God. And deserve the judgment of God as a result. There's not a single person to have ever lived that hasn't done something wrong. And before we pity ourselves, let's be honest. We've done a lot more than a little wrong. We are corrupt at the heart. We're characterized by a sinful nature that that wants what's best for ourselves at the cost of of whoever else. That's our nature. According to Scripture, we, we are sinful. And because of that, we have fallen short of the standard of God and deserve the judgment of God. And left to ourselves on our own, we, every single one of us, and every other person to have ever lived, would be one of those bad fish that's discarded by the fishermen and thrown away as worthless to experience the the deserved judgment of God. We read that this morning. David read about God's judgment and His justice from the Scriptures. And that's the truth of God's Word, that God is a just God. 
That is not unjust and condemning anyone because we have all fallen short of his standard. But the good news for for us is that God has not left us to ourselves to, to face the deserved consequences of our sin on our own. Scripture says clearly that that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him, his son, Jesus Christ, him who had no sin, the only one to have lived a sinless life, made him sin for us, taking on our sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. An exchange has taken place where those who, who trust in Him, who believe in Him, receive His righteousness. His right standing before the eternal God in heaven in exchange for, for Him taking on the punishment that we deserve, the wrath of God that we deserve. And so only those who who trust in Him are considered righteous in God's eyes. And all who trust in Him for forgiveness and salvation are considered right in God's eyes and will be spared the judgment of God at the end of the age. On the contrary, though, the wicked will receive the judgment of God. The wicked will receive the judgment of God. That's the picture here. And throughout Scripture, the the judgment of God is real. The wrath of God is real. And it's not something to be taken lightly or to laugh about. I saw a post just this past week on Facebook that, that really poked fun at and ridiculed the very idea of of a real hell and its nature, its inhabitants. And when we talk like that, we have no idea what we're saying. Because if the Bible is true, and I certainly believe that it is, the judgment of God is real against all those that are not found right before God. And there are not varying degrees of of reward or, or what we'll receive based on what we do in this world. There are two verdicts here, the righteous and the wicked. And the righteous will be spared the judgment of God, but the wicked will receive the judgment of God. And so at this point, when Jesus is telling this parable, He pauses and then He turns to His disciples in verse 51 and He says, Have you understood all these things? Jesus asked. Yes, they replied. He said to them, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. And I don't know if you're anything like me, but upon first reading of that, where does that fit in to, to what Jesus is saying here? Does this have anything to do with this parable of the net? And, and I believe that it does. I believe that it's intentionally placed right here where it is. And that it's very intentionally connected to the truth that Jesus is communicating through the parable of the net. And and this is how, after Jesus talks of this, he, he, He talks about the coming judgment of God, He turns to His followers, 
those who have already put their trust in Him, placed their faith in Him. It's, do you understand these things? Now remember, back in verse 36, His disciples came to Him and asked for an explanation to what He was saying, asked for an explanation to the parable of the weeds. So the disciples didn't understand everything, just like the crowds. But they did understand, because they had placed their faith in the king of God's kingdom, they did understand far more than the crowds. And so in response to this truth, Jesus turns to them and asks them, hey, do you understand these things? And they respond in the affirmative, saying yes. And then he tells them one more parable, one more comparison here, here found in verse 52. He said to them, therefore, in other words, therefore, because you understand this, Therefore, every teacher of the law who has become a disciple in the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. So what's being communicated here? What's being said? And Jesus says, every teacher of the law, every teacher of the word of God who is a disciple in the kingdom of heaven, who's a follower of Jesus, is now... Like the owner of the house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. Now Jesus is that owner. He is the owner of the house. He is the master. And through his life and his teaching, his instruction, he has brought out both old and new treasures. And you may say, well, what does that mean? How so? Old treasures because he's not abolishing the Old Testament. He says that very clearly, does he not? In his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, I'm not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And so he, through his teaching, through his life, he's saying things that are consistent with what God has communicated throughout the centuries to his people. But he's also bringing out new treasures because he himself is the fulfillment of those things. And so Jesus is that instructor. He is that teacher who brings out of his storeroom both old treasures and new treasures. And now he's saying to his disciples that because they have been taught and because they have been trained by him, they are now responsible for that instruction. They have now become the instructors who, like Jesus, will bring out treasure from the storeroom who like Jesus will proclaim the truths of God from His Word. And so the truth that we see from God's Word here is that the righteous are responsible for teaching the truths of God. The righteous are responsible for teaching the truths of God. So all will be held accountable before God. The righteous will be spared the judgment of God while the wicked receive the judgment of God. And in light of that reality, in light of that truth, Jesus is now telling his followers, as those righteous people, that they are responsible for teaching, for proclaiming those truths of God before the world. And that's the picture of Scripture. Is it not? It's the picture of the New Testament. Turn back a couple pages to Matthew chapter 10. Just as Jesus taught the ways and the purposes of God, the truths of God, so now His followers are responsible for teaching and proclaiming those same truths of God. But Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, Jesus called His twelve disciples to Him 
and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the twelve apostles. First Simon, who was called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot. And Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Now skip down to verse 24, same chapter. Jesus is still instructing his followers. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household. So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside of your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Skip to the end of this same book, the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 28. So in Matthew 10, we saw this picture of Jesus sending out the twelve to proclaim a message among the people of of Israel, among the Jews first. And now in Matthew 28, before the ascension of Christ, after his resurrection, he broadens that mission much broader, in fact, and he tells his people in Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 18, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. So Jesus, in Matthew 13, through this parable with his, his disciples, his closest followers, and really and a number of other places and throughout the, the New Testament, the picture that we see is that the very first Genuine believers in Jesus were charged with proclaiming the truths of God to the world. The very first individuals who placed their faith in Jesus and were declared righteous before God were were now charged with speaking those truths to other people so there might be other followers, other disciples of that king. And they're especially charged to do so and we're especially charged to do so because we're in that same line of believers, followers of Christ, in light of the coming judgment of God. So especially in in light of the return of Christ and, and the fact that the wicked will receive the judgment of God, you and I are called to be faithful in teaching and training and proclaiming the good news of salvation in Christ to the world. That's the picture here, that that we are born, reborn as believers to spread the truths of God throughout the world. 
Because Christ's followers have been taught the truth and cleared of guilt, they are responsible for spreading the truth lest the rest receive the judgment of God. Because Christ's followers, those who've believed in Jesus, because they've been cleared of guilt, declared righteous, and taught the truth, they are now responsible for spreading that truth lest the rest of the world experience the judgment of God. I believe that is the central truth of what's being communicated through this passage, through these few verses. It's that we are responsible, not the government, not Hollywood, not your child's teacher, not your grandmother, not your neighbor. We, you and I as the people of God, are responsible for teaching and training others in the truths of God. In declaring the message of God. It's easy for us to sort of sit back and sulk about how bad the world is becoming. And and the world is bad. And it has been evil since the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden. But our task is not to sit back and to point the finger at, at everyone else for their immorality. But our task is to be faithful to the king. Our task is to be devoted to the King and to speak the truth and to speak it in love and to be obedient to to the ways of Christ so that the world may hear from us and see us and be pointed to a Savior. And we do so because those that don't know Christ are going to receive the judgment of God. The same judgment that you and I deserve. And we read about that clearly in Scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This whole list of, of sins. Not a comprehensive list, but a list of, of, of a number of sins. And then look at verse 11, or, or hear verse 11. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. The reality, according to Scripture, is that all of us have fallen short of the perfect standard of God. And because of it, we deserve the judgment of God. But God, in His goodness, in His grace, has offered salvation, forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration to us through Jesus Christ for all who receive Him, for all who believe in His name. And so because that is true, we, we are charged, we are tasked, we are commanded to speak the truths of God throughout a lost and dying world. And so as we draw this message to a close, I want to leave you with just a couple questions for, for personal reflection in light of these truths. And the first is this. Will I be counted as wicked or righteous? Will I be counted as wicked or righteous at the end of the age that Jesus speaks of, at the return of the King? The one before whom all of us must give an account. According to the gospel, 
apart from Jesus, apart from His death, His substitutionary death on our behalf, no one will be considered right before God. But because of Jesus, all who place their faith in Him will be amazingly, graciously seen as innocent before the eternal God of the universe. But all who don't stand condemned already. That's the message of of John 3.16 and following. Isn't it for God so loved the world that sent His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then verse 17, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through Him. And in verse 18, the picture is Apart from Christ, we all stand condemned already. We're already condemned. And the way out is by the grace of God through faith in Christ. So at the return of Christ, will you be counted as wicked or righteous? And then lastly, am I producing other disciples? Am I producing other disciples, other followers of Jesus Christ? That's the picture of Scripture. It's the mandate of Christ. That for those who who know Him, who've trusted in Him, who've recognized their sin and their need of a Savior, cried out to the Lord for forgiveness and received forgiveness as a result by God's grace, that they are now responsible for producing other disciples throughout the world. And the good news, as we already read this morning, is that we're not left to our own to do that. Jesus is with us. And ultimately, it's up to the Spirit of God to convict the hearts of people and draw them to Himself. But we are responsible for proclaiming the message, for speaking the truth, so that there might be other faithful followers of Jesus. If you know Christ, you have been reborn through Christ to teach others about Christ. Because Christ... Followers have been taught the truth and cleared of guilt before God. They are responsible for spreading the truth lest the rest of the world receive the judgment of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is true. We thank you that you have entrusted us with, uh, with it, Lord, and that you have called us to be your children, called us to be your people, Lord, that you... We thank you that by your spirit you have convicted our hearts that we might know you. That we might, even in the midst of our sin, turn to you a a loving and merciful God who, who came to rescue us. So Lord, we we pray that we would be found faithful to you. Lord, I pray for this church and I pray for those that are here this morning that that all would have the assurance that they will be counted as the righteous because they trusted in the only right one who died in our place, Lord, the Lamb of God. Lord, may that be true of us, Lord, and may you continue to call us and lead us to, to faithfully speak your truth, to proclaim your truth, as you told your first disciples, Lord, that, that we would speak it from the rooftops. Lord, that like John the Baptist, we would say, Behold the Lamb of God. See the Lamb of God who sits on the throne. Lord, that we would all be about intentionally teaching and training others so that they might know you and follow after you for your glory.
and our good. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.